When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on sending messages over Slack versus picking up the phone, sending a follow-up thank you note, name tag etiquette, and using girlfriend versus girlfriend. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, our question of the week is about making plans with friends who have financial obstacles. All that, plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript where we get to dive into truly Emily Post, and Dan gives us a little peek into Emily's personality. All that, coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Oh, I got to see you in person. We saw each other. <laughs> Go figure. It was really nice on Sunday. I was I was driving around and I was in your area and it was so wonderful to have you be home and not that I expected you to really be anywhere else and willing to take a visitor. It was like such a beautiful day uh, in Vermont in general, but especially up in the mountains with all that foliage and your property was looking so nice. It was really delightful. Well, not just willing, but um, eager to find an excuse <laughs> to get outside and enjoy some of that afternoon. It was such a nice visit. We had some cheese and some apples and some grapes. So we walked around the property. Dan's been working on his pond, like kind of cleaning up the area around it. It was it, everything looked really good up there, cuz. And you are so kind because I've I've done it with my brother and my father. There's nothing quite so mind-numbingly boring as listening to someone describe where they've limbed trees and cut back the brush. <laughs> I, I did not mind at all. I got excited and into it when I imagined uh, zip lines down into the pond in the summer once a few trees were okay, cleared. Okay, okay, okay. And you could anchor the Don't lines tell. Somewhere. That so- was such a good idea. You can't give it away. I'm going to surprise the family. <laughs> they don't listen to the podcast. I'm interrupting. I'm talking over you. You must stop this line right now. <laughs> There you have it, audience. You are in on the secret. Don't tell the family. It was such a nice visit. My biggest disappointment was it was so nice. I didn't have an excuse to try out the new outdoor space heater that I was fortunate enough to acquire over the weekend. And I'm so geeked Ah. out on that. I'm just like, come over. Let's set up the heater and stand around outside. Getting ready for some outdoor pandemic entertaining, I see. (laughs) The heater for the porch, the heater for the garage. They've got slightly different specs and... Totally. No, that's a good setup so that, you know, when it's nice out and you feel good about it, you can be outside. If it's if it's not, if it's too windy or something, that, that protection of the garage but still having that big bay open, way to go, cuz. Way to figure it out. I'm glad that I it won't be see you hopefully in the spring. <laughs> we're, we're setting it up. Setting it up. I feel like as as we're all finding ways to socialize as best we can, that... There is one thing, and you tell me if you think it's different, but I feel like we're getting better at speaking up for ourselves or saying no, or at least just hearing each other out in terms of how to negotiate how you feel comfortable hanging out with someone. And I know that that was something, I don't want to say the idea of rejection or the idea of imposing, um, because I feel like those both put really negative connotations on the idea. But the idea of speaking up for yourself sometimes felt counterintuitive. And I feel like uh, in, or sorry, in social situations. And 
it's really nice to feel like more people are willing to say, oh, I really appreciate you, you know, telling me how you do it. I think it still doesn't quite work at the level I feel comfortable at, but I really hope you all have a good time. That sort of thing. I feel like I'm hearing more people decline well, I guess maybe that's what I'm trying to get at after a minute and a half. <laughs> I hear you. And, and as I'm hearing you kind of game it out in your mind, I was thinking to myself about the, the, the range of those interactions I've had just over the last week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, visitors from out of state coming by for just like the briefest sort of social distance drive by and what are going to be the parameters for that on one end of the spectrum. And then on for me, sort of a, a much closer part of the spectrum, my brother and I had a check in conversation about where we're drawing our lines these days, what has shifted in terms of how we've changed things, who we're interacting with and it was a much more detailed, much more intimate conversation, but the basic idea was the same. It was, this is how we're doing it. We'd be comfortable like this. How are you doing mm-hmm. it? What makes you comfortable? Where's the middle ground where we can get together? Does it sound like we can find or something not. here? Yeah, yeah. But I, I've also noticed those conversations, um, there's more ease. Maybe they're just more practiced than they were three, four, six months ago. I really think that they are. And and while I don't want to like cheer heavily and like congratulate us all or anything, I do think it's a good skill that we're acquiring and I think it's it's one that will serve us well later on when we are able to get together. As we get into winter, I'm I'm both looking forward to winter because I I do like it. Um, But I'm also kind of wondering how all of this is going to work and it's definitely going to feel a little different still. Oh, I I can feel it coming just this last week when we were visiting with those friends from out of town. We're we're out on the porch and there was this moment where we were all looking inside through the glass doors at the living room where there was a fire in the fireplace. Longingly. And it just looked like a very inviting space. It was sort of calling us. Anyway, um, definitely didn't didn't work out in that particular instance. But um, Pooj and I have also been having this discussion and – Last night, as Anisha was bouncing off the walls, having been inside on a rainy day all day, we sort of looked at each other and said, no matter how cold it gets, every day it is worth it. We will bundle up. We will put on the gear and we will get outside. Make it a sledding party. Make it an Arctic adventure. (laughs) Make it an Octonaut South Pole adventure. Whatever you need to do, we are going outside. <laughs> no, it is. It's a good practice and a good thing to steal your brain for right now. Because when it's zero degrees out, you can definitely want to want to just stay in. Oh, bouncing toddlers! How they will definitely motivate you, right? <laughs> well, do you think it's probably time that we should get to some questions? I think I could warm up to that. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just remember to use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. 
you'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories. Some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question is titled, Can I Call You Instead? Hi, Dan and Lizzie. I'm a big fan of your show. I have a question about remote work etiquette on Slack, although it should translate to most other workplace messaging platforms. I find that Slack conversations about technical details often lead to miscommunications. Furthermore, I find that questions over Slack sound, and that's like in quotes, so they sound or are read confrontational without tone of voice or faces for context. When is it justified to request that you convert the conversation into a phone call or video conference? Do you need to provide a reason for the transition? Could you provide a sample script for a conversation transition from Slack message to phone call or video? Thanks, Anonymous. Anonymous, I've got to tell you that um, Lizzie Post's first call <laughs> note under your question is, ooh, da lolly. <laughs> this is like, I feel like this was us writing in, Dan. <laughs> I know, a couple um, of new slackers here. We are. And Dan and I actually, uh, we we kind of, having not used Slack much, we we didn't understand why we would want to participate in it instead of traditional emailing and phone calls to, to move work forward. And I have to admit that now that we've been using it uh, with our web team for, for a while now, I, I really do like it. There are a couple things I would want to change, but I, I actually think it is a great way to organize things. And I love how much our team asks us to just make lists of things that like to do straight up to do lists, post them there and then they'll go through and check them off and they all respond and you can kind of see, see it all happening. So it's really cool. But Dan, in our business etiquette seminars, you teach this very question. So I'm going to just sit back and let you take it away. <laughs> I, I do. And one of the things I really like about this question is it's um, a, a jump. It's a technology jump for an old question. And the way that we were hearing this asked 10 years ago was always about emails. When does this email chain become so confusing? What are the advantages to picking up the phone, giving someone a call, giving yourself the chance to both communicate with that full range of emotion that's available when you've got the tone of your voice, the speed and pace of your conversation, the inflection, and how much do you lose by losing the written record of that call, the specificity that comes from being very clear with language and and choosing your words and sentences in such a way that you're accountable to them. Um, and there's a record of them for everybody to look at. So there's, there's, there's pluses and minuses on both sides. And one of the things that we used to say when we talked about when you would make the choice to pick up the phone and give someone the call was if there was ever emotional content that you didn't feel was being well communicated via the written word. And my little tip or hint for people there is that that dosage of emotion that tips me over to the point where I want to talk to someone in person or have a phone call is usually a pretty small dose. That as soon as it starts to feel fraught, either angst or upset, or if I really want to communicate delight or satisfaction, um, it's much easier to to communicate those things in person. Although, never underestimate the power of writing. I'm so delighted when you get something that <laughs> makes you happy. Um, totally. Because it is a judgment call, I want to give you a, a thought that can really help making that judgment in the moment. And that's ask yourself what the communication is in service of. And if that purpose is being served well by one communication, do it. If it would be better served by switching, 
then listen to that. Listen to that voice. Listen to those demands and make the switch because clarity of communication is really important, particularly in business. That is such an excellent point. And it, I think it really helps clarify how to make a decision for when to move it to the phone or not. So one of the other things that Anonymous asked about was the idea of tone and how you come across in your written words on a screen as opposed to when voices or faces are present to help you interpret how someone is saying something. I know that recently there have been reports on people being really um, – not upset uh, over the the use of a period at the end of a sentence, but that it really makes them feel like someone is being serious or harsh when they say something. And it's so interesting because I remember when we started at Emily Post, Dan, the big deal was not to include exclamation points everywhere because it was too exciting. It was too in the world of, of sort of frivolous and fun and not serious and work. And now it's almost the opposite is starting to happen. Um, standard questions to anonymous are sounding confrontational or harsh. I think we've all seen that happen. Ask someone else to read your email sometime, and I guarantee that they will read it in a harsher or more simplistic way. I think if they read it to themselves silently, as opposed to reading it out loud, I feel like when we read something out loud in front of someone else, we're like, you know, you kind of put put on a nicer tone. But I know that when I'm reading emails, even from Dan, who like is never harsh in his emails to me, sometimes they sound harsh, quote unquote sound. Um, and I think it's really easy to feel that way. So one anonymous, try to understand that that's a really common feeling. The idea that when someone writes something neutral, it comes off as like angry or negative. When they write something positive, it comes off as neutral um, has been around for a long time. And I think that th that's just something to be aware of in general. And then I think try to do your best to make sure that when you communicate, you're communicating as much of your true intent and tone as you can with that using really good and descriptive words. Sometimes if it is what you're looking for, using encouraging language to the people, like, go team, I'm really excited about this, or looking forward to getting this chunk of the work done. I know it's been really hard for everybody, but if we could answer these questions, that would be great. You know, as opposed to, we need these questions answered by Friday. Done. And both of them get the point across, right, Dan? But <laughs> different ways. <laughs> This is such a rich question. There's so much going on here. Um, I'm reminded when I hear your advice about rereading an email for tone that it's it's such good advice. If I'm thinking about a program like Slack or a workplace management app, I would read the conversation and my participation in it because so often it's very quick mm. back and forth. Um, mm -hmm. It might help you to get a sense for how you sound over time. The impression that you build in that channel is one thing that I would keep an eye on. If you're hearing advice like, oh, use some language to soften what you're saying and thinking that's completely unrealistic. I, I'm, I've got 10 Slack channels open. I'm managing 15 clients. Think to yourself, well, maybe it's every fifth message or every third message that I make an effort to humanize yeah. just a little bit and address someone else's situation or scenario so that you start to work that in a little bit. It's going to help you build the benefit of the doubt around that natural reading tendency that Lizzie was describing where people – don't hear your positive tone as they reread something. So sprinkling those things in and no, you don't have to do it every time, but making an effort to do it a little bit is a huge deal. Learning how to continue to support relationships when we are dealing with this mediated communication, communication that isn't in person is emerging as a really important professional skill and your ability to keep the tone of a Slack channel positive is a work skill today. And it, it isn't that it's a distraction. It's about doing the things necessary so that people get along well enough to hear each other and work well together. The transition sample script, I think Lizzie was like tiptoeing right <laughs> up to it. <laughs> um, and, and my thought there is that just give them, give them the, um, the benefit of the doubt of understanding your reason so that you provide a reason, but there's no need to go into a long explication. 
Um, would love to clear a few things up. Do you have a minute to jump on the phone? Could be enough to transition that conversation from one channel to another. You acknowledge that you're making a jump. You ask permission to do it and you give a reason why. And boy, that sounds like I'm doing a lot. Most people are going to do that naturally in one sentence. So don't don't overthink it, but Absolutely. do it. It's, it is a lot easier than it sounds. <laughs> A final thought, because we keep saying Slack, 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 Slack. For those of you that have adopted Microsoft Teams recently, it's a very similar service. So you could go back and re-listen to this question, and every time you hear Slack, think Microsoft Team or similar (laughs) workplace project management app. (laughs) Anonymous, we certainly hope that our answer helps, and we hope that your Slack channel is a much friendlier and positive work environment moving forward. I think Jimmy and Susie would like to know how valuable the telephone is in emergencies. Uh, the telephone helps us because it lets us know right away when we're needed and how, when, and where we can help people. This question is titled, Thank You, Again? Hi, Lizzie and Dan. My husband and I are expecting our first baby any day now. Today is our due date. Hopefully, in advance, congratulations or... Maybe now it's the future and this happened in the past. Maybe by now we have the baby out. Yeah. (laughs) Continuing. And we had a few Zoom baby showers in late August. One couple who attended did not send a gift, which was totally fine with us. I struggled with whether to send a thank you note to them for attending because it felt like it was pointing out the lack of a gift. But I did. I wrote a simple, honest note saying it was fun to have them and applauding their winning the baby shower game we had. I think I know where this is going. Well... (laughs) A week after we sent their note, a check arrived in the mail from them with an apology for the delay. Do I send a second thank you note for the check? Thank you so much for your excellent show, Emily. Emily, oh, you've you've served us up a nice, easy, wonderful thank you note question. I say absolutely. You've thanked them for their coming to the party, the Zoom party. So you haven't thanked them for a check. And so you definitely want to send a thank you for this check. Um, I know you are probably like totally on the, the sleep schedule craziness now. I'm sure the baby has arrived by the time this airs. But it's definitely a good idea to send uh, the thank you note. And they've mentioned, you know, apology, so sorry for the delay. You can say, oh, no, no apology needed at all. This is such a surprise and and something to be extra grateful for. And that might be the way to let them know that truly their presence was enough the first time around. But the, it's it's wonderful that they've sent you this. I don't think you should have any worries that they felt guilted into it or anything. I think you're no saying, you know, thank you for coming to the party and supporting us was absolutely appropriate and lovely. Dan, how'd I do? (laughs) I was going to say, Emily, I have nothing to add. Thank you so much for this question. Lizzie Post, you did a phenomenal job. Emily, thank you so much for this question. And we really hope that you're enjoying that bundle of joy. Thank you is a simple way to repay those who do things for you. Yes, we do need these simple expressions all the time to show that we are thinking of the other person. Our next question is titled Name Tag Etiquette. And I kind of geeked out at first because name tag etiquette is usually, usually specific to where it's worn, but this is a different subject. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I took a job in Minnesota and was surprised that many people here often put on name tags for work and social events. It was especially odd at work events where all present already knew the names of the others present. When I'm in a store or at a doctor's appointment, for example, and the person attending to me has a uniform with a name tag with their first name written on it, I feel odd addressing someone by name when they haven't introduced themselves to me. I feel like I'm inserting myself in a social sphere that I haven't been invited to. My question is, if a workplace requires workers to wear their first name, large, on a name tag, is it socially invasive or presumptuous to address them by name? Martin. Okay, pop quiz. Etiquette geek, what side (laughs) do you wear your name tag on? Where do you wear your name tag? I do know this answer. It is on the left. (laughs) Bravo, bravo, ding, ding, ding. Do you want to venture uh, a guess as to why? I'm, I'm flipping the switch here. This is usually you say. asking me wedding questions. 
I think I remember correctly, and I, I would have to look it up, but it doesn't have to do with your gaze being able to see the name tag and read it clearly when you're, in, I, I think, um, like when you're shaking hands or when you're engaging in an introduction. I've heard something very similar to that. Um, okay. I don't know if there's a, a right answer. I often wondered if maybe it was just practical that many people being right-handed, it's easier to attach, affix, or, or work with a name tag left. that you're putting on the left side. <laughs> that when you reach out to shake someone's hand, it doesn't um, sort of turn the right side of your body. Oh, so yeah, it, it leaves that. that that name tag available to somebody <laughs> while you're shaking. But that's not what Martin wanted to know. No, and – well, there's a bunch of things I want to bring up before before we address Martin's specific question of workplaces that have their workers wear name tags and whether or not you should use the worker's name. But I love the fact that even our assistant producer, Bridget, chimed in because she was saying that she really loved the question because it always kind of uh, startled her when customers called her by name when she was working in a store. Even mm-hmm. though she had to wear a name tag, it was like a surprise, like a stranger was using her name. And I could definitely see that. Like if someone was trying to get your attention and they were saying something like, you know, like, excuse me, Lizzie, I'd be like, whoa, like, is my mom behind me? Like it could kind of make a person feel a little like caught off guard because they obviously don't know your name. But I do feel like, Dan, when I'm in a store and I've worked with someone and they've helped me some way that even even sometimes if it's just getting directions to a certain area of the store – Um, that I often say if I've noticed their name tag, you know, oh, thanks, Ben. Thanks, whoever. I really appreciate Mm -hmm. it and, and walk off. So there's something for me about having had at least a little bit of an exchange first that makes using the name feel okay, but it doesn't feel okay when someone's like calling out and, and we haven't had any exchange yet. There's a certain subtlety to this question that the more I think about it, I I say to myself, you're right. There's a question of tone of voice. There's a question of timing in the interaction. There's a a question of the degree of familiarity you actually have with someone. To me, that's the the startling thing is that there's something about addressing someone by their first name that's very informal. It's very familiar. And at the same time, when someone wears a name tag, they're wearing a name tag to give you that information and to make it available to you. And theoretically, it's it's not just to like put that name in your head, but right. that it facilitates the relationship in some way. And I, I like your positive example that when you're thanking someone or you've had a bit of an exchange – Using someone's name can be humanizing. It can be about acknowledging their individuality, their identity. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's something about if you haven't had even the briefest of smiles or twinkles of eyes to establish that rapport that it could seem intrusive, surprising or startling. Right. And I was thinking to myself that you might be able to remove some of that startle or surprise with other magic words like excuse me or pardon me. But those are still initiatory right. terms. That's the beginning <laughs> of something. So it's likely that you're you're trying to get someone's attention. So excuse me, Tom. Um, if you weren't really monitoring the tone, could could start to be a little demanding. Softer. Yeah. Oh, 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 sorry. I thought you were going to say that kind of, excuse me, Tom, almost like it was a question on the Tom and a real question and said softly might be just gentle enough to make that excuse me with the Tom. Okay. But, but as, but you surprised me, you went the other way with it. That it, but because it actually... I was hearing a slightly different tone in my mind, oh, but the gotcha. way you okay. just said it, those same <laughs> words, actually that, that, that slight questioning inflection softens the use of the name a little bit. It's not demanding. Well, and Another thing that's interesting about this, Dan, that you and I had been chatting about was that, and and this isn't Martin's specific question, Martin's asking about workplace situations, but you had brought up that at social or community events where you wear a name tag, that the same excuse me, Betsy, or excuse me, Tom, might actually sound quite friendly and approachable as opposed to a little off-putting and startling. (laughs) I do think that there is a difference between a situation where someone is in a service relationship, a professional service relationship, and a social function. Mm -hmm. And if I'm thinking about a social function with name tags, oftentimes the purpose is to make people that are new feel really welcome or 
um, like they're they're just reminded. Maybe they've met a few of these people before, but we all know how hard it is to remember names all the time. And it can be such a it, it can be so helpful. And for everybody that knows everybody already, as we referenced in the question, it can feel like it's sort of a strange practice. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it's not for those who are familiar. It really is for everyone else and can really work well. So I, I don't want to say, oh, name tags, they're so silly either. Um, no, no, they could, I think they're very helpful. Or that they're problematic, that they invite this familiarity that you shouldn't have. But it's not a social sphere when we're talking about that service relationship, that professional context. Mm-hmm. So it's not a social intrusion, but I do think you got to be careful about about how you do it so that you don't end up triggering some of those little red flags that might go off in someone's mind. And as I was going to say, the other factor I do think is time. My local grocery store, where a lot of the clerks have worked there for years, and I've been a customer for years, and we've had little exchanges over time. Now I feel totally comfortable saying, you know, hi, Kathy, or, you know, whomever's whomever's there checking me out if I've known them for a while. And even though we haven't ever done a full formal introduction to to one another, um, and they might never know my name. That's one of the other things, especially now that most of us hold our own credit cards and, and debit cards and, and punch in on the little keypad on our own. And there is no exchange there. If you're not a part of a rewards program or something that your name is appearing with, then they might not ever know your name, but you know theirs, which can feel kind of awkward. But I think we've covered all of Martin's questions, but to sum it up, The idea is that if a workplace is requiring workers to wear that name tag, that it is available for you to use. But as Dan said, how you do it really makes the difference. Martin, thank you so much for this delightful question. Well, in our practice in class, we learned that introducing people was just a matter of showing respect. Bill, this is Pete. Pete Dalton, Bill Anderson. How do you do, Bill? Hello, Pete. Our next question is about girlfriend versus girlfriend. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Over the past six months, I've been facing an etiquette problem that I could very much use your help with. Sample scripts, please. I'm a woman, and I recently started dating another woman for the first time. It's going wonderfully, and I'm very much in love. Prior to this, I wasn't out to friends and family and had dated men, so telling people about my girlfriend has meant coming out to loved ones and acquaintances alike. Cue the dilemma. Many people, particularly older women, use the phrase girlfriend to refer to any female friend, whereas the younger generation tends to use it only to refer to romantic partners. This means that if I tell older friends, family, and coworkers that I'm going on a trip to visit my girlfriend, they'll often ask me later how my friend is doing. Coming out is scary, and it takes courage to use the word girlfriend in conversation because it does click for many people. So I often feel frustrated and unheard when others in my life don't understand. I don't know how to correct them, especially with folks where this has happened multiple times. But it is important to me that they know how I identify and that my girlfriend is more than just a friend. I keep hoping that if I say girlfriend enough in conversation, folks will eventually catch on. But so far, that hasn't been the case with anyone. So far, I've just been letting it go, but it does get to me. I've had longer conversations with the people very close to me, parents, siblings, grandparents, but I'm really at a loss on how to help my coworkers and acquaintances understand in a way that is casual, avoids undue emotional burden or invasive personal questions, and allows me to live honestly. What do you two think? How can I make it clear that my girlfriend is not just a friend who's a girl, especially when the misunderstanding has been going on for months? Best, Anonymous. Oh, Anonymous, congratulations on finding love. That is that is not a moment to be missed as we, we are about to tackle this question. I'm really glad that you, you detailed everything out for us, both the perspective that sometimes kind of different generations, or at least from your experience, different generations seem to use the term girlfriend differently. I remember as a kid being annoyed whenever, and you were right, for me it was older women as well, would say, Oh yeah, my girlfriend, because it would, it would confuse me because we never talked about our guy friends as boyfriends. And so that, that was for me where I was like, why doesn't everybody just say friend? They're my friend. And I I remember being annoyed by this as a kid. As I grew older, I, I did adopt the, oh yeah, my girlfriends and I all went out the other night or, but when you pluralize it, it's different. 
I can also really respect your desire to want to have the the casual drop, the casual pickup, the way that people kind of learn about your life where you just tell them details of what you're doing and they figure things out about you. You know what I mean? Clearly anyone who talks to me in the summertime is going to figure out I like golf or probably that I'm single. But it's it's the casual drop as opposed to the heavy drop that I can totally respect wanting to find. Dan, how about you? I love it. It's it's an etiquette space. And it's a question that involves so much awareness about personal boundaries and where you might want and not want to have conversations that could push those boundaries while still living honestly and in a way that leaves you feeling whole and integrated and presenting in a way that other people can know that you. And it's a specific enough etiquette question. It's something we do all the time. How do we address this sort of generational language question where the word itself has different meanings for different people? I think that the the way you bridge that divide, um, and it's whether you're with someone who's who's older than you or whether just the person you're with is not picking up on it. They could easily be younger than you. They could easily be a peer. But I think that, honestly, adding the romantic detail to the relationship. So instead of, oh, I went to see my girlfriend. Oh, I went to see my girlfriend. Nothing like a weekend with the one you love. You know, or just adding something about like, it was great to finally get a date night or, you know, what did you do last Wednesday? Oh, it was date night with my girlfriend. You know, those kinds of things, I think when you, you add the romantic kind of touch to it could help be that still, I don't want to say subtle because at that point you're really putting it out there, but that, that softer, I think, casual way that you've been expressing, you'd like to, to be able to convey this without having to flat out say it. And I think it might also, like you say, not invite such a large conversation about it, but keep the focus on the fact that you had a great date night or that's what you were up to on Wednesday night. You know what I mean? To me, this is the perfect solution. The idea of a romantic modifier <laughs> just to, to to notch up the, the amount of information that you're giving, particularly, as you say, if you're aware that it's something that someone hasn't picked up on with that that other language, that other piece of information – as I was reading the question, the other thing I really appreciated here is the understanding that the way we communicate with other people about our romantic relationships is often a process where the people around us figure out how important that new friend is to us. And yeah. I, I could think about sort of the classic um, discussion between parents of, oh, oh, this one, is this the one? Oh, it seems like there's really something going on here. And they don't actually know, but they're starting to intuit. They're starting to pick up on the importance of this relationship based on how someone talks about it. And this is Dan prepping for when Anisha is finally a teenager or old enough to start having crushes. Well, crushes happen way younger, but I can, I can see Dan being like, I got to keep on a lookout for the clues. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> When's my daughter going to have a crush? <laughs> but there is this sort of fun detective game that we sometimes play with each other and particularly at the early stages of a relationship. Oh, yeah. No, my parents do it with me all the time. There's there's often a, so you've been talking about this person a lot. Is this someone new? I don't know, Dad. <laughs> like, <laughs> that does happen a lot. <laughs> and it's entirely possible that that game of patience of – letting other people know just by the fact that you keep bringing this person up that they're important to you and that they're a significant part of your life is isn't an unreasonable tool to keep in your toolbox. I like the fact that you bring up patience because I'm thinking about some of the people whom anonymous has has interacted with who haven't picked up on it and they're frustrated, you know, that like oh man, you haven't you haven't gotten this yet. But take heart in the fact that they haven't gotten it yet. When they finally do, it, it will be that click, that moment for them. And so I say keep dropping, dropping the the casual, um, the casual mentions. And as as we've said earlier, add the romantic modifier. I love I love the idea of that. And then I think they they eventually will uh, catch on. I was thinking about those people when you have those frustrated moments, like oh man, this person still doesn't get it, do they? And it's just like, yeah, no, they, they still don't get it. When they do, it, it will be that fresh moment or it will click finally. And I say look to that 
confidently um, and look forward to it as maybe as opposed to being frustrated by it. That might put put you in a better mental space. But other than that, until they get it, they don't really get it unless you decide to tell them directly. Anonymous, we really hope that this answer helps and that this relationship continues to go well and that the other people in your life can see that as well. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or reach out to us on social media. On Twitter, we're at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we're at emilypostinstitute. On Facebook, we're awesomeetiquette. Just remember to use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your social media post so that we know you want your question on the show. If you love Awesome Etiquette, consider becoming a sustaining member. You can find out more about this by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesomeetiquette. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you help to keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already sustaining members, thank you for your support. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we're hearing from Rob on episode 316 about birthdays that fall on Christmas. Hello, awesome etiquette team. The birthday and Christmas scheduling conundrum mentioned in episode 316 made me reflect on how well it has worked for me to celebrate all of Christmas tide rather than just December 25th. Observing the traditional 12 days of Christmas, beginning on the 25th and running through the 5th of the new year, makes it much easier to gather with a variety of friends and family members. It may not help solve the problem faced by Anonymous, but it has made the holiday season less stressful and more merry for me. Happy upcoming holidays to all, Rob Kent DeGray. Oh, Rob, thank you so much. Not not only did that, for some reason, make me feel very jolly and excited for the holidays, like the, the real wintry ones, but Dan knows that I love, I, I try to make it mandatory at our company that we take the week between the 25th and, and New Year's Day off, that often it was something that I championed for when the company had more people at it, and when it became very small, just the two of us, I was like, here we go, and <laughs> Now's the time. I love that particular week and the idea of really using it to kind of draw out the celebrations. And you're right, it probably wouldn't have worked for Anonymous, but I think it'll probably help a lot of other people if they if they choose to go that route too. So I, But I learned the word Christmastide through this. I didn't know that that's what those days were called. Rob, thank you for a great piece of feedback and for inspiring us to look up Christmastide. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. We so love to hear from you. time for our postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette and this week well we're diving deeper into the topic of Emily Post as opposed to etiquette itself but we thought that it would be really fun to do a postscript segment straight out of Truly Emily Post which is the other biography um it was written by Emily's son Edwin Post and it's a biography written by a loving son <laughs> but it does tell fabulous stories of Emily Post, and it really paints a picture of how she thought, how she talked, what her conversations and relationships with her family were like. Um, And so Dan found this great sort of section. Dan, do you want to tell our audience a little bit about what you have for us from Truly Emily Post? I would love to. We are going to start very near the beginning. Um, This is a section from the first chapter. We're starting on page four of Truly Emily Post. And to set the stage, Emily's father has been commissioned to, as an architect to design and help build Tuxedo Park. And that project has just been completed and we're now being introduced to Tuxedo Park. And we're going to see um, Emily at the stage of her life where she took up residence there seasonally. Tuxedo Park was the second country club in America. 
It was the first anywhere in the world to be an independent, planned, carefully screened community. Its opening with appropriate fanfare in May 1884 inaugurated an era. The vogue it started was to last, supreme and unchipped until the Great Depression. The cottage in the park was one of four which Mr. Lolliard had encouraged his architect to build for himself. The largest of the four was the Price's summer home. Emily had spent every summer there since she was a long-legged schoolgirl. She and Tuxedo had grown up together. She had gone to her first real dance at the clubhouse and appeared in private theatricals, always a popular feature of the Tuxedo season, on the stage in the club's ballroom. She had essayed her first flirtations in the clubhouse veranda. She had been married at the Episcopal Church within the park. Mr. Lilliard and his architect had considerably allowed space for God, also for a doctor. Neither the souls nor the bodies of the club's members were to be neglected. All other matters, neither athletic nor social, were relegated to the village, which Mr. Lolliard built and owned outside the park gates. Everyone in the tuxedo set, which was subtly different from the Newport set and the Southampton set and the Bar Harbor set, though there were some families which overlapped, took it for granted that young Mrs. Post, so recently Emily Price, would open her cottage at the park at the conventional time in May. As Emily had always behaved correctly, and as was expected of her, it was anticipated that she would be in proper retirement for a few months, not being seen in public except driving in her carriage and not receiving any callers except married ladies. With the same exemplary regard for the proprieties, she would, when the time came, have her baby in her own house, attended by the local general practitioner with some reliable old family servant as nurse. During the accouchment, Emily's mother, keeping true to form, would preside in the drawing room until the doctor came downstairs, reported the sex and condition of the infant, and invited its grandparent to ascend and inspect it. Young Mr. Post would be permitted, even encouraged, to take himself to the club where the ritual champagne would be waiting on ice. Mrs. Price was one of those who took every step in this procedure for granted. Short, stocky, rigidly corseted, with sandy hair and none of her daughter's stately beauty, she had stared incredulously when Emily announced, sometime in February, that she and Edwin would not be at the park that summer. Why not? Mrs. Price demanded. The doctor thinks it's inadvisable. The doctor? What doctor? Still sweetly, though fully aware that what she had to say bristled with surprises, and that Mrs. Price was not one of those who enjoyed the unexpected, Emily explained that she had put herself under the care of a New York physician who specialized in obstetrics. He lectured on this subject at the New York hospital. Obstetrics? The unfamiliar word came from Mrs. Price's lips in a sputter. It means having babies, darling. That would be Emily. There is no need to be coarse, replies her mother. <laughs> Certainly not. Obstetrics is scientific. An obstetrician is quite the newest thing in the medical profession. There aren't many of them yet, but they are coming along. Scientific, a snort proclaimed Mrs. Price's opinion of science as applied to the natural process of birth. She continues to express her opinions about um, fad diets, uh, general hygiene, and... Um, uh, other fads that she deemed to be uh, youth culture at the time. It is such a fun book. It really does give you a, a, a glimpse at the personalities behind the um, sort of stately social maneuverings that I think I often associate with the world of Emily Post. Oh, I, I kind of want to hear the more. I know she tells Emily that she might basically kind of turn into what we imagine of a hippie today, but I'm like laughing at the fact that she's probably saying this to Emily back you know in in like is this for the birth of bruce or edwin no no this would be edwin probably the first the oldest this would be edwin and i don't remember what year he was born in but it was still lo long before hippies were around it's it's such a classic conversation twist a couple words and and you could hear you know a mom and daughter today saying it. oh absolutely <laughs> What do you mean you're going to have your baby at home? <laughs> keto diet? What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. Keto diet. What are you talking about? Um, but it is really nice to, to kind of hear the rapport between the mother and daughter, which she calls her mother darling. <laughs> just is like, oh, it's just almost too much. It's scientific, darling. <laughs> it's scientific, darling. Truly, Emily Post is 
truly Emily Post. And the whole <laughs> family bio feel of it is one that I kind of lean into as I'm reading. What I try to picture is um, Emily in retirement uh, talking with her son who's writing a biography about her and them sort of sharing stories about the family and her life. So I, I kind of read it with the feel of that conversation in my mind. And if I'm not saying to myself, this is a thousand percent historically accurate, but I'm saying it actually communicates very accurately the way they understood their lives <laughs> um, and the way they felt about living them. I think it's a really excellent record, and it's a hard book to find. If you ever come across uh, a physical copy of Truly Emily Post, do yourself a favor and grab it, because it's not an easy book to get your hands on, and it is so much fun. <laughs> but it is it is a cool book, and thank you so much for bringing it out for us today and diving into it. I'd, lo I'd love to task you with finding some other great sections from that book to bring out, because I think it'd be really a lot of fun so thanks so much for bringing that out today we will return to truly emily post and the turtles that got loose in the basement i love it i love it i love it <laughs> notice how pleasant and thoughtful mrs anderson is as she expresses interest in bill's ideas on the post we like to end our show on a high note so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world and that can come in so many forms today we hear from chelsea Good morning, Awesome Etiquette team. Recently, my husband's boss hosted a small picnic as a thank you for the intimate circle of people who work with him every day. It was a potluck-style dinner. Now, I have been eating a gluten-free diet for six years as mandated by a health concern, and I usually find myself limited at many food-centered functions. Since the health concern is mine, I keep it to myself, and I'm usually very successful in finding things I can eat at events. However, I do find that I miss out on a lot of dessert. Thus, at the picnic, when the desserts came out, I assure you they looked beautiful and smelled even more wonderful. But in true Pavlov fashion, my mouth watered instantly in vain. That was until a colleague of my husband's brought out a nondescript package with an additional set-aside dessert that she had gotten just for me. She had taken it upon herself to find out if anyone had any dietary restrictions and brought me the most sinfully delicious fudgy brownies with toasted marshmallow-like cream on top. I will admit that I begrudgingly offered to share, but am fairly certain everyone could see the glutinous gleam in my eye and politely left the entire thing to me. I was incredibly touched that she went out of her way to find out about my gluten-free diet and then brought a separate item I could enjoy. It was a small thing, but it was really very touching, especially because I love chocolate. In addition to the handwritten thank you note I sent, I felt Ariel's class and thoughtfulness should be highlighted somewhere. Chelsea S. Oh, that's so deliciously great. <laughs> Etiquette kudos to Ariel. We're just delighted. We get so many questions early on on this show about dietary restrictions and hosts. Yep. And it's so much fun to hear a story about someone doing it well and just how good it made someone feel. Chelsea, thank you so much for the salute. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please connect with us and share this show with your friends, family, maybe your coworkers, and hopefully out on social media. You can send us questions, feedback, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you can leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member. You can find out more about this by visiting patreon.com slash awesomeetiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review or engaging with one of our sponsors. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. Bridget.